Welcome to Discovering Responsible Wealth. This is your host, Frank Congelos. Pleasure to be with you this week. Last week's show, we had gotten started on the topic of threats to growing our wealth, opportunities to grow our wealth, and what we should be doing as it relates to our money and our finances. And the theme since we started the beginning of this year has been to know the state of your flocks. And when I say that, I mean in terms of every aspect of your life with regard to you know, the state of your relationships with people you love and care about, um, your relationships at work, the state of your flock as it relates to your business, as it relates even to your faith and every other aspect of your life. But for our show this week, we're going to be focused on our finances. And as we're focused on our finances, last week's show, we hit on a few different topics. And some of the topics that we were talking about, which is, you know, what's our best investment we can make? And we naturally came back and we said, the best investment you can make is in yourself. And then we elaborated a little bit on that. And we said that money follows value. And it does in every sense of the word. And when I say every sense of the word, what I mean is this. If you invest in yourself, meaning your education, um, your insights as it relates to money and finance and investing in your career, and if you invest in you as an individual, whether it be coaching or whatever, what will happen is you'll create more value for others. And as you create that value for others, typically compensation follows. Now, if you're a business owner, we'll go to the next level, which is, in our country, most people that are wealthy have become wealthy through owning their own business. You know, they call America the land of opportunity. Well, for a lot of entrepreneurs, that opportunity has made them very wealthy over a period of time. And what an opportunity they found was is that if they create value for others through innovation, through whatever the means may be, technology, whatever, by being able to apply that information and create value for others, they profit. The end result of profiting is this, is that the value of an individual financially is called a human life value. And what that means is that if I had someone who was, say, 30 years old with a 35-year working career and they earned $100,000 a year, that individual's human life value financially would be $100,000 a year for a 35-year career or $3.5 million. Well, for companies, it works the same way. And so as an individual, when we look at this and we go, well, how does that relate to me investing or what I should be doing with my money? So as I mentioned before, when you invest in yourself and your education, like even listening to this show, you're investing your time to learn. As we look at money, and we look at what I just mentioned as far as companies and organizations or whatever, what we're looking for is the value they provide to others and what is it that they receive in terms of income and profit and ultimately you know, cash flow. That's reflective in the stock price of whatever they're worth, meaning that at the end of the day, the reason why people own stocks or bonds is that business owners, entrepreneurs require capital. They require money to put into their business when they have an idea or they have a value they're providing to others and they want to grow that business. In exchange for that, we're going to be rewarded one of two ways. 
I can be what I refer to as a lender lending money to a business, and they would call me a bondholder doing that, meaning that you know, I'm lending a business money in exchange for an interest rate. Um, in the capital structure, I typically will have the first lien. If something went bad on the business, I'm going to get paid before a stockholder. So it's a little more secure as a bondholder when we think in terms of that. But in the capital structure and how a business you know, gets capital to grow, if I'm a stockholder, it means that I own stock in the business and the return I, I get in exchange for that is referred to as a premium, meaning that if the business is successful and profitable, I share in that. The more successful and the more profitable they are, the higher the value of the stock, and I should enjoy appreciation, rented lips, appreciation over a period of time. So when we're thinking about investing, that's really what we're talking about. Now, you might look at this and you might say, that all sounds good, but what does that actually mean to me? Well, what that means to you is a couple of things. If you are looking at to, as to what you should do with your money, there's a few things that we talk about. The first thing is, is that you should always have an emergency fund on hand. Emergency funds are to make sure that when you're putting money away for investments, investments if they're long-term, if I have a short-term emergency such as, you know, the, the air conditioner went in the house or the heating unit or, the, you know, whatever the case might be, the roof goes, you've got to have capital on hand to support yourself. It's no different than if you were to get laid off for a period of time. Company has a cutback, whatever. How do you support yourself? And owning investments that are not timed to that might mean that you may be selling something at an unopportune time, thus you're getting less than you should be getting for that. Now, anytime you invest, keep in mind there's always a risk associated with it, which is stocks go up and they go down. Bonds go up and they go down. There's always risk associated with it. So what we're going to talk about is how do you manage the risk and how do you do it prudently? So the first thing about managing risk is this. In the terms of investing, the first thing I would tell you is, is that it's important to diversify. And when we talk about diversification, you know, there's different charts out, and they'll talk about all different types of indexes. They'll talk about the Standard & Poor's 500, the Dow, the EFI. Uh, they'll talk about large companies, small companies, international companies, and all of that. And it's interesting because what's occurred is over a period of time is there's been a lot of science that's been performed as it relates to investing. There are Nobel Prizes given out to Fama and French. What they had identified is, is that the market return that someone's able to accomplish comes from the market. It doesn't come from typically a money manager. Now, a money manager may provide some alpha or some additional yield, but at the end of the day, it's the market that provides the return. Now, when the market provides the return, the key is, is which market's going to go up? Will it be large companies this year, small companies, whatever the case might be? And because we don't know what the future is, the key is, is to have a broadly diversified portfolio. Now, when I say broadly diversified, it means effectively that you're going to own stocks and bonds in all different asset classes. And when I say all different asset classes, 94% of your investment return, when you understand this, will actually come from the market itself. 
how the asset allocation was put together. So as an example, if I put all my eggs in one basket, so as an, you know, when we think about this, if I put all of my eggs in large cap growth, if large cap growth did well this year, I'm going to have a great return. I'm going to do very well. However, if large cap growth did terrible and I had all my eggs in one basket, I missed all the other indexes I didn't have any diversification in. It's actually possible, okay, and it's, you know, been found out it's a science that by diversifying, I can actually reduce my risk while also increasing my return. They refer to that as the efficient frontier, which means that at a point, the investments that you made and the diversification actually reduce the risk again while providing you with the ultimate return that you can achieve there. Now, that being said, there's all different types of investing, and there's some rules of thumb that they've identified over a period of time. So some of the rule of thumb that they've identified, and again, this was Fama and French that did it. Markowitz was the one that came up with the 94.42. But when you look at this, what they've identified over a period of time was this, is that value-oriented companies, value meaning that companies that didn't always look the prettiest, maybe they had something going on at the time, but they weren't going out of business. So companies that are considered value stocks actually outperform growth stocks over long periods of time. So there was a study that was done from 1926 to 2012, and it said in the 25-year period, so you know, just running an overlapping period of time of every 25 years, value has outperformed growth 100% of the time. If you really looked at it over a 20-year, a 15-year, 10-year, 5-year, it's consistently outperformed. What's interesting, however, is, is that value typically outperforms growth, but most people, when I actually analyze what they have in a portfolio, they have a lot of large-cap growth, large growth, not value. In addition to that, small-cap, long-term, has also outperformed the large-caps. Now, to give you an idea, I'm not suggesting by any means that you would run out and own all small companies. Keep in mind, small caps mean small companies, higher risk, but also higher reward, but they should have a, a place in a portfolio. Likewise, we think in terms of international. When we think in terms of global market capitalization, which is you know how big the global market is, uh, where people have their money, where industry is, if I was to go back to 1970, the U.S. had 66% of the capital market. International was 34%. In 2012, the U.S. was 46% of the capital market, and international was 54%. And if they project, which they have, out to 2050, the U.S. will be 17% of the capital markets, and international will be 83%. So what that's telling you is that a broadly diversified portfolio would have all of the different asset classes, large companies, small companies, international companies. They might be tilted as well to have some a little more value than you might think and also to have some small cap. And that's how a portfolio is actually put together. Now, some of the things that I'm mentioning to you should be done with the help of what I refer to as an advisor. 
And as you work with an advisor, your advisor should be the one that's actually assisting you in putting together a prudent portfolio. Now, when you put together a portfolio, there's other decisions you're going to have to make. One of them that's going to be presented to you is going to be, are you going to be active or will you be passive in the management of your portfolio? Long-term, active managers have not consistently outperformed the indexes. The indexes have actually done a little bit better, you know, on a regular basis when you look at that. So when you're looking at your portfolio, one of the things that you may consider are using some indexes or, or all indexes to round out a portfolio, which will do a few things. One is you know that you're getting the index. The second thing is is that you're typically going to outperform the active management, not necessarily always, but you will most of the time. And in addition to that, your fees will typically be lower. And when I talk about fees, there's a variety of fees that are built into a portfolio. There's a management fee. That management fee is what you typically see in your prospectus. For some funds, it could be as low as 20, 25 basis points. And I've seen funds as high as 2, 2.5% in just a management fee. In addition to a management fee, you may have commissions which is if you're dealing with a broker-dealer or a stockbroker or whatever the case might be, there may be costs on the buying and selling of the investments that you own. So you need to look at that closely and read the prospectus. Or there may be an advisory fee. You may be dealing with an advisor who doesn't get commissions. They may be fee-based, in which case they may be charging 1%. Some charge a little more, some charge a little less they may be charging you a percentage of what the assets are that they're managing. In any event, you got to make sure that you know what you're paying for and you know what you're getting. Here's one of the key things as it relates to the fees and everything else. Last week, we spoke about an organization referred to as Dalbar. And Dalbar did a study, and they study investor behavior. And they look at what the markets have performed over a period of time and what the average investor has achieved over a period of time. Now, the Dow bar for last year hasn't come out yet. It should be out any day yet. Uh, they're saying that by the end of March, I should have it. So I'll be able to give you the actual numbers. But historically speaking, here's what's been going on. The average investor has been getting about half and often less than what the markets have been doing on their own. And the reason why they've been getting half is because they're usually buying and selling at the wrong time. And what I mean by that is the largest expense to a portfolio is often the investor themselves or even the advisor, thinking that they can time when to get in and when to get out of the market, which nobody knows. And when I tell you nobody knows, if somebody claims they know, if I were you, I'd run for the door. Nobody has a crystal ball. And I have a friend of mine who's been on the show in the past, Peter Grandich, and Peter would say, anyone that claims to have a crystal ball needs to be prepared to eat a lot of broken glass. So keep that in mind when we're looking at you know, trying to predict the future. But in staying with that, here's what's come up. If the market over a 20-year period of time, according to Dalbar, and again, we'll have the number shortly, averaged 9%, the average investor did 45 and what typically is occurring is this. As the market is going up, everybody starts getting excited. They're looking in it. It's almost like being in Atlantic City. 
And they go, wow, I'm making money. I'm making money. And what do we do when that's occurring? We put more and more money in. And that leads us to be investing all the way up as it continues to rise. And then all of a sudden, something happens and the market starts to correct. It could be something going on internationally. It could be something going on here, whatever. By the way, there's always something going on. And when the market goes to a correction and it starts to go down, at first, we look at it and we go, oh, might be temporary. And by the way, they all are temporary. It's just a matter of how long. And then all of a sudden, the market starts going down. And we go, uh-oh, starting to lose money. Let me jump out. So what I start doing is I'm buying and selling at the opposite times that I should be. So what I tell you is, is that that emotional investing is the largest cost on any portfolio. And it's hard to stay in it, but you got to stay in the game. So as we wrap up this week, you've been listening to Discovering Responsible Wealth. This is your host, Frank Congelos. If you have questions, you can write to us at the Institute of Responsible Wealth, 2431 Atlantic Avenue, Manasquan, New Jersey, or email us at info at ifrw.com. Thank you and have a blessed week.